Thank you, Pastor Rick. It's so good to be here at Calvary Chapel, Okinawa. Um, I know that probably most of you don't know who I am, uh, but this faith family just has a long, long history of pouring God's grace into my family, uh, my own ministry. Uh, you, you guys may, may or may not know this, but this church just has this amazing culture of being open-handed with the kingdom of God and blessing other ministries, growing fruit on other trees. And so as you give to this church, you've supported us uh, here in Okinawa. You've supported us in Europe. You've supported us as church planners in America. So I, I just want to thank you for that. Uh, we go back all the way to the year 2000 when I was out here as an intern and uh, started to partner with them. Uh, I didn't have any kids at the time. Uh, so sometimes I get to introduce myself uh, and talk about my wife, Jennifer. She's uh, we've been married for 24 years, uh, and if you were here in the first service, you would see three out of four of my daughters, so I have four daughters, uh, and so when, when people hear that, their eyes sometimes get a little bit bigger, and then they ask, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm in full-time women's ministry, and um, <laughs> it's great. Um, sometimes I get to do this and open up God's Word with people, but uh, no, it, it's it's amazing uh, being a hashtag girl dad. Um, sometimes people always say, well, don't you wish you had a boy? Like, I don't know what you do with those things. They look out of control and wild. <laughs> I, I don't know how that works, but I've learned some things. I've learned a lot of things now that my g girls are older here. Two of them were born here, uh, but now they're teenagers. And um, just at, with teenagers, I learn new vocabulary like every week. Um, so recently learned... Uh, uh, what a fit check is, and not military, but like a fit check, like your outfit check. Um, yeah, a lot of time in the Oshman family is spent in front of mirrors in, in my household. I'm like, what are you doing? And so sometimes on a school night, I'll be like, hey, you got school tomorrow. You, you need to get to bed. Like, you need more sleep. And so I send them on up, and I'll, I'll be doing something. I'll come up like an hour, two hours later, and they're still just like milling around. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, Dad, I had to, I had to set out my clothes. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, well, that takes like 20 seconds, first of all. Secondly, why do you got to set it out? You just get it tomorrow morning. I'm like, no, 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 dad, you don't understand. I had to do a fit check. I'm like, what? Yeah, I had to try it on. I had to look and see. And then I had to try different combinations. It's like they're cracking a safe. Like they, they know what clothes they have, but tomorrow's a different deal. And so like hours, I'm not joking. Uh, and honestly, honestly, my wife, Jen, is not much better. Um, <laughs> she, like, she gets, uh, often gets uh, opportunities to speak at different women's conferences. She's an author. Maybe she should read some of her books, get us some money. Um, <laughs> but so, for example, recently we got to, uh, we were speaking at a conference in Europe, because I still do some stuff in Europe and in Slovenia. But she was going to join us along the way, but she was going to go up to Wisconsin first and then meet us in Slovenia. So she had two different locations. She had to pack all in a, a carry-on. And, and so she's always like going on church's websites and seeing what are these women dressed like? And I got to figure that out and fit that in. So she had to do that for, Slove for Slovenia and for Wisconsin and, and meet us there. And uh, the night before we were about to leave, I'm in bed, I'm reading a book. She comes in and she's like, you got to get out of here. I'm like, what? She's like, you have to leave. I, I have to pack and I don't want you in here. I don't want you judging me. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, it's going to take a few hours. I'm like, a few hours to put stuff in, in a bag? She's like, yeah, get out of here. And so I, I had to get out of there, right? Like, I, I, I don't normally roll like that. But um, 
Because when I wake up in the morning, I, I walk into my walk-in closet, and, and whatever's closest to my right hand, that, that is God's ordained plan <laughs> for my outfit for the day. And, and I'll put on a hat, and I'll walk back out. I might glance in the mirror for the fit check, and I'll move on. But so, you're like, what does this have to do with Colossians chapter 3? Well, I'll, I'll tell you in just a minute. I mean, th there are times and moments and settings and jobs and all those where we, we all have to do a fit check, right? Like, depending who you're going to see, you're going to see the general, you're, you're probably going to do a fit check. Um, if, you're, you, if you're a president, you, you're, you've got a certain kind of outfit. We want you wearing a navy blue suit with a blue or red tie. That's your whole variance there. Um, depending on where you go to church, like you're Calvary Chapel, so you guys look beautiful. You look like you go to Calvary Chapel, though. You go to church in, like, Alabama? You guys want to be welcomed back but, um, with, with what you're wearing. But, uh, you know, there's just different moments, different times where we have to do a fit check. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Colossians, is going to appeal to the church in Colossae and, and to us and, and use this metaphor, not, not actually, not physically, but, but kind of spiritually, hey, as followers of Jesus, do, do a fit check. You're going to need to take some things off and, and put some things on to represent and, and to persevere in your so I was supposed to be here last week for these two weeks. I was supposed to set this up. So you didn't get any of that last week because you got a typhoon instead. Um, but let me just share a little bit uh, of my heart before we jump into God's word this morning. Uh, I love and will always pray for and work for and may, the God, be, may God be gracious to Calvary Chapel and, and here and wherever we're at to bring new people into faith family, to be born again, to, to, to see their, their energy, their zeal. I love that. I love that. But as I've been a pastor now for over two decades, there has been something else that I've been increasingly uh, focused on and burdened by. Um, and that's simply, how do I say it? There, there, over a couple decades, you see people that, that are on fire for Jesus, love the Lord, and then you check in with them five years, 10 years, and they're no longer, they've made shipwreck of their faith. You're like, what happened? And I'm no longer surprised by it, but I am saddened by it. And I, I think as important as welcoming the people of God into the family of God, as important as, as that is, is persevering in the family of God and being prepared for that. And I think that, that, that this is a concern that the Bible actually speaks, has a lot to say uh, about. And, and while we often think of, often communicate Christianity as the entry point into the kingdom of heaven, sometimes we don't do a great job of talking about, well, how do you persevere to the end? But like, there's probably not a, well, for sure, there's not a Christian in this room who doesn't think they'll be a Christian in 5, 10, 15 years from now. But my experience says that some of you will not be walking with Jesus. And it's, it's not that you don't plan to not walk with Jesus. It's just that so often we assume too much. We assume that we'll be walking with Jesus. And we don't have a plan to walk with Jesus. Well, the, the book of Colossians is a plan. There is a, a plan for your perseverance and your joy, your continued growth in the faith in Christ uh, and this is the purpose of the book of Colossians. So just a little bit of context here. Paul is writing to this young church at Colossae. He did not plant, but he has heard from one of his disciples who planted this church, has heard of, of the amazing things that are going on there, but also some dangers, some pressures. They, they faced some temptation. 
There was external pressures to uh, compromise and, and give up their faith in the broader culture. There were internal pressures in their own flesh and desires. There was false teachers uh, putting pressure on the church. It's not unlike us. Everyone in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a pressure on you this morning to compromise externally, internally. And so uh, we, we see it. We see it. Uh, there, there's entire uh, social media channels and TikTok channels on how, how to deconstruct your faith. And, and there's a de- definitely a pressure there. So, so what would you say to a friend, a family member, or yourself if, if they were feeling the pressure and beginning to go down some of these roads? Well, to the church at Colossae, Paul writes a letter. He writes a letter to give them a plan to persevere in their faith. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 mostly, but let me give you just a little bit of context here before we jump into that again, because I wasn't able to give it to you last week. But uh, Colossians chapter 1, Paul is going to simply remind them uh, in, in, in really probably my favorite chapter of the whole Bible, Colossians 1, uh, of the the supremacy, the supremacy, the majesty, the glory of what Christ has done and who Christ is. That he transferred us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son God loves. It's an amazing chapter. I, I would encourage you to memorize Colossians 1. But the point of the book of Colossians is actually not simply to talk about the, the beauty, majesty, and supremacy of Christ and what he's done in your life. The point of Colossians comes in chapter 2, verse 6. Here's what, uh, what Paul says to the church. He says, so then, in light of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for you and for me, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, as king over your lives, continue to live your lives in him. It is this idea that there is to be an ongoing process but, but here's the question we should ask. How did the church at Colossae receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Well, the same way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Someone told you the gospel, and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you received it. It wasn't anything you did. wasn't anything you earned. wasn't anything that you, you uh, kind of worked up in your life. No, it was grace alone, faith alone. And so Paul is saying, how do we persevere in the Faith, the same way we received it, by the gospel. So the gospel isn't simply the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Zs of the Christian life. So how does the gospel continue to uh, work itself in us and out through our lives? This is what Paul's going to get at. But in chapter 2, he doesn't fully answer that. He deals with some of the actual uh, temptations uh, and reasons why the Colossian church would be tempted to abandon their faith. Uh, some of the different false teachers and believers. One, one way that you can abandon your faith is to look more spiritual and look more religious. One way that you can abandon your faith looks very religious. It's simply in your own effort and in your own strength, showing to the world and to God that you are righteous in yourself. And so the, the church at Colossae had these false teachers that would come in and, and they would say, yes, 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 Jesus plus this. Jesus plus this kind of prayer life. Jesus plus these spiritual disciplines. Jesus plus this kind of fasting. Jesus plus don't eat those things and don't drink those things, and then you'll have the fullness of God. And it sounds good because it sounds really spiritual. And it's not just Jesus plus 
uh, you know, spiritual things, but they had other things. We have other things. We're all tempted in some way, shape, or form to think, if I, had, if I have Jesus plus this thing, th- this wealth, this status, this American dream, whatever it is, then I'll really be satisfied. But what Paul was getting at in chapter 1 is Jesus is so sufficient. He's so supreme. He's so glorious. Anything plus him is, is subtraction by addition because you're taking away from his all-sufficiency in your life. Well, well, what about the people that really look really spiritual? Well, Paul's going to show it for what it is at the end of chapter 2. <clears throat> he said there was these people that would come in and be like, yes, Jesus plus all these rules. And, and here's what some of them were in verse 21. It says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Listen to what he says. Such regulations or rules, spiritual religiosity, indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He's saying all of that looks really good, but it has no spiritual power in your life. Um, But it looks really good. And people can think that you are really serious about your faith if you have all these things. Martin Luther, when he was uh, a young man before he started the Reformation in the year 1517, he was actually a, a law student in Germany. And his, his dad was a wealthy businessman. He was putting him through law school. One day he was walking across a field in Germany and a, a lightning storm busted out and lightning was striking apparently everywhere. And he was terrified for his life and he was thrown to the ground and he cries out, St. Anne, save me. And uh, he survives the storm, but in the midst of the storm he had committed, if I survive this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my life to God. I'm going to commit my, everything to God. He didn't understand the gospel yet, so uh, what he did, he got up and he, he, lo- he dropped out of law school. He, he found a, a monastery to join. He wanted to, the most strict one, so he joined the Augustinian Monastery in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and there he committed himself. Like when it was time to fast for a day, he would fast for a week. When it was time to pray for an hour, he'd pray for a day. Uh, when it was time to go into confession, he'd go and he'd spend all day in there. Like, like confessing every specific and every, everything he could possibly think of, just annoying the priest. Like, Luther, get out of here. He, they, they would find him sometimes uh, curled up in a ball outside in the snow uh, as a way of punishing himself for his sins. He, would, he was trying to show God and the world that he was really, really serious. And on the outside, it looked like this guy must really love God. And, and later in life, they would, he, he would write about this. He'd say, some people would think I loved God. And he would say, love God? No. Sometimes I hated him. I conceived of him as a cruel tyrant who just was waiting to smite his creation. It wasn't until he was asked to teach through the book of Romans that he woke up to the gospel of grace. And and it uh, opened his eyes and he's like, oh, it's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's everything. That's the whole thing. That's where I find my satisfaction and sufficiency and everything. He, He woke up to this and the Reformation started from there. This is what, what, what 
he arrived at. This is what we might call grace-driven effort. Now, it sounds like, it sounds like an oxymoron. Let, let me give you a quote. It sounds like an ex- oxymoron, grace-driven ex- effort. But I think chapter 3 is going to show us what that looks like. Here's a quote from Don Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, that talks about what God is calling us to as God's people. He says this, people, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. Prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That's kind of a, a famous quote. Uh, but, but the thing, Carson doesn't answer, well, what then is grace-driven e- effort? I'm waiting for that book to come out. But, but I believe Colossians chapter 3 is the answer to that. What does grace-driven effort look like? You can, you, can pursue right, you can pursue sanctification. So in the moment that you've uh, accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that you are justified, that you have received the righteousness of God. You are holy in God's sight. That's true of you positionally. But practically, there's a gap. Practically, we aren't perfect and righteous and holy. Practically, there's this gap. And making up the gap and growing in that gap, the Bible's going to call sanctification. And God cares about the gap. And he wants to equip us. He wants uh, us to pursue the sanctification. But how we pursue it and why we pursue it makes all the difference in the world. We can either do it in our own strength as a a form of self-righteousness and fall and falter, or we can learn what it means to have grace-driven effort. Again, this is what I think chapter 3 is about. So if you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Again, Paul is going to uh, give them a a fit check or show them how to do a fit check. Um, I'll pick it up in verse 1. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So so Paul is always, always, always going to do this. Just continue to remind us of what's true in the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, this is true of you. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. And so uh, just start with and end with and, con- and continue with the gospel. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. So he says, set your hearts and your minds on things above. Now, in our culture, there's the phrase, follow your heart, which is terrible advice. But your heart does matter. And what Paul is saying is, no, lead your heart. Your affections, your desires, your joys matter. So lead them to where they should be. 
Lead them to a seeing and a savoring of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lead them to a place of delighting in God and do that in your hearts and your mind. Think on these things. Think about what Christ has done and accomplished in you and for you and will do forever and ever. And set your hearts and your minds in those things. It's what the Puritans would call stir your affections for the Lord. And, and so that's the first instruction. As you remember the gospel, uh, take seriously what you think about and what you feel. Both things matter because you are whole people. It's not just our minds that matter, thinking rightly, but it is our hearts and our wills and emotions. So that's where he starts. He starts with the gospel. Again, reminding them of the gospel. Now, now you're going to have to, he's going to shift into this fit check thing. So in the uh, early church, dated at least back to the second century, when a, a person became a believer, they would go through about a year of catechism or, or learning about the essentials of the faith. And then on Easter Sunday, they would be baptized. Now, now what would you wear if you were going to go be baptized? Well, you, you think about what, what's going to go on. Well, in the early church, what, what they would wear is on that day, they would show up to Easter Sunday services in their rags, their worst clothes, their threadbare clothes, their dirty, soiled, uh, unrepairable clothes. That, that's what they would show up on. And then they'd go down by the river and they would take off these, the, the old and then get into the water and, and, and testify to the world that they are buried with Christ in his death and raised to newness of life. And then they would come and they would put brand new, fresh, clean linens on them as their clothes. It was another symbol, another picture of what has happened in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And I think they got that practice from this passage. There are some things that we need to take off. There are th some things that we need to put on. Listen to what Paul says here in verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we are too familiar with it. We're too familiar with Jesus' stories. We're like, okay, do you understand what the Bible just commanded you to do? It's the only time the Bible has commanded you to murder something, to make war with something, to, to do whatever it takes. He says, murder your sin, put to death your sin. This should shake us. Like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's some serious language. Well, the, well, the Bible is going to take the, the old nature, the, the sinful nature, very, very seriously. I mean, Jesus is going to say, if your right hand it causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. You're like, well, the, that's just metaphorical language, Mark. Yes, well, what does the metaphor speak to then? It speaks to, at the very least, to, at the utmost, take seriously your sin. Put to death your sin. Make war with your ongoing sin. It's serious. We only need to look at the cross of Jesus to know how serious God takes our sin. The Bible, the Bible James will say, sin uh, is like this apex predator that if you continue to feed and you continue to pet and continue to try to maintain, eventually it will grow big enough and it will devour you and it will lead to death. And so Paul says, you got to take these things off. You got to take it seriously. Uh, a few years ago here, uh, about 10 years ago, I was in my office here in Okinawa. I was with a friend. Uh, we were we were on my computer at night, and we were watching 
we, we pulled up Netflix and we were watching a, a documentary, uh, Grizzly Man. Anyone ever see Grizzly Man? Okay, we got a couple head nods. I'm not necessarily advocating for this documentary because uh, you'll hear the, hear the illustration in a second, uh, but fascinating. So, so this guy named Timothy Treadwell, um, kind of like uber hippie, just loved, loved, loved grizzly bears. So he moved up to uh, Alaska and began to film himself uh, getting to know, getting close to, befriending uh, the different grizzly bears. And he had names for all of them, and he would get close to them, and they would kind of get to know him, and he would know them. And he just loved these, and he was just trying to advocate, we, we just need to love the grizzly bears of Alaska. And, and, and throughout the documentary, it's all this footage of him getting close. And, and honestly, you don't even need to see the docu- documentary to know where this thing leads, right? Like the day before where it leads, there's some, there's some footage that he was filming where they, him and his girlfriend have this real tense encounter with one of the grizzly bears, just massive. And, and then thankfully in the documentary, they don't show it, though apparently there is footage of it. The next day, the, the bear comes, mauls the girlfriend, and him eats both of them. They have to go find the grizzly bear, kill it to get the remains out of the stomach of the bear. And then the documentary cuts away, and, and it um, starts to interview like local Alaskans and park rangers, and they're like, yeah, it was a grizzly bear. <laughs> Don't hang out with grizzly bears. This is what Paul is saying. Listen, don't play around with your sin. You're like, but it's not that big a deal. And I can find some other moron that is worse than me, and I'm I'm good. Like, no, no, no. All sin gives birth to death. Take it seriously. And this is why we we take it seriously. So, for example, if 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 your smartphone causes you to sin, get a dumb phone. If your Netflix causes you to sin, knock it up, cut it off. Like, like, do at least the bare minimum to put to death whatever is causing you to sin. And then so Paul gets specific to what, what they were facing. And, and not surprisingly, what they were facing is not that different from what our culture faces. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality. The word in the Greek there is pornea. We get the word porn. It, it really, in the Greek, just means any de- deviation from God's uh, designed and good purpose for sex in marriage between one man and one woman. So put to death any sexual immorality. Impurity, also sexual connotation. Lust, also sexual connotation. Evil desires. In this context, it, it can mean other things, but it, the word is epithemia. It means over-desire and, says, and greed. So sexually it's wanting more and different and unique and, and, and as many sexual experiences as possible. It says put these to death. They're idolatry. You're elevating God's good gift above God, and it will lead to your death. This is what he says in verse 6. Because of these, the wrath, the justified wrath of a holy God against sinful humanity is coming. Wrath of God is coming. And then look at verse 7. He says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Now, Now, I imagine... When the church of Colossae gathered and they said, hey, we've got a letter from the Apostle Paul. And he begins to read it out loud and they hear about the glory of Christ and they hear, just as you 
Just as you receive Christ Jesus Lord, continue to live in it. I imagine when, he, when, when the reader gets to verse 7, what we would call verse 7, it says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. I imagine there were some in the crowd that were like, used to? That was last night. That was this morning. That, that was last week. But don't, don't miss this. Here's what Paul is doing. He's appealing to what's actually true. Paul is saying, hey, no, no, here's what's true of you in Christ. You are holy, righteous, justified, perfect in God's sight. That used to be you. I don't care if it was this morning or last night. Here's what's true about you. That's not what defines you anymore. The, the blood of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ is what defines you. So now walk as who you are. That used to be you. That used to be us. That's not who we are anymore. Verse 8, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. And this is just kind of the, the ongoing things that cling to all of our hearts. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So he's saying, put to death your sin. Take off the old self. But it's not just enough to do away with the old self, right? It needs to be replaced with something better. It's what, what Puritan Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. You, you need something good to replace that. And so this is where he says, in taking things off, putting things on, verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, again, starting with the gospel, reminding them of the gospel, you've been chosen by God. Holy, you've been made righteous and holy by God, and dearly loved. If you're in Christ this morning, do you know that you are dearly loved? Like, do you know that's your core identity? I know some people that know that theologically. They're like, yes, God loves me. It's kind of what he has to do. But they don't feel that. Or do you know that not only are you dearly loved, but that God likes you? I mean, I have, I have friends, I have pastor friends that I have to tell that, I, I have to tell them almost every time, hey, Colbert, God likes you, man. Like, thanks for reminding me. You are chosen, holy, dearly loved. In light of that, put on some clothes. Do a fit check. Clothe yourselves. And he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Th those attributes should make us think of someone, namely Jesus. Like this is, uh, could have been shorthand, clothe yourself with Christ. But, but again, if you're doing a fit check, you don't just kind of go through the motions, right? Like my daughters don't just check on, like they're thinking about it. They're, they're trying to crack the code. So what Paul is saying is when you get up in the morning and you think about what your day is, like be very intentional. Like, you know what? Well, go into your spiritual closet and say, what is this day going to hold? I don't know. I'm going to have to layer up. I'm going to need some compassion today. I'm going to put that on. I'm going to need, in addition, some kindness today. Like people are going through it out there. And I want to represent Christ well. And so I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what's the struggles they have in their marriage or at work or their finances or, or in their spiritual lives. And so I, I'm, I'm going to put on some kindness 
And I, I want to be like Jesus. And so Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be clung on to, but humbled himself, I, I need to put on my, my, my next layer of humility because I want to reflect Jesus. And because Jesus has loved me and has been gentle with me, I'm going to put on some gentleness this morning. And then finally, I'm going to put on patience as I head out into the world. But notice something else about the attributes. These are worked out with other people in community. I hope that you have an amazing prayer life. I hope you have a, an amazing personal devotional life. I, I, hope that, I hope you have that. But where the rubber meets the road, where your sanctification really gets worked out, is with the people on your left and your right. It's in the context of the church. Like, he's going to go on and show this. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another. It implies life together. We're kind of like porcupines. Like, we're meant to live close to each other, but when we do, we poke each other, right? If you don't have to bear with anybody and you don't have to forgive anybody, maybe it's because you haven't actually given yourself to the church. Because if you get close enough to me, I'm going to sin against you, and then you're going to get the opportunity to forgive me, and vice versa. Like, like this is where our life gets worked out. And even in that, though, he reminds them of the gospel. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is how we grow to be more like Christ, in community, forgiving, loving one another. The church is the plan for your sanctification. Here's what James K. Smith says about this. He says, there is no sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, without the church. Not because some building holds a superstitious magic, but rather because the church is the very body of Christ, animated by the Spirit of God and composed of spirited practices. The, the, the way that I know over the last 20 years of pastoral ministry, the number one indicator of someone is going to be a follower of Jesus is how much they're invested in giving themselves to the church. And many of you are in military community and you're at a great church right now. Here's what I've seen so often. People that lead, that have an amazing church and then they get to their next, it's not quite the same and they haven't invested and they don't really give themselves to it. Those are the people that I see walking away from the faith. You have to give yourself to the church, as difficult as it is, because we're all in process. But it's in that process that God sanctifies us, preserves us, keeps us, holds us. So he says, oh, by the way, there's one more thing you have to put on before you head out the door. Verse 14, he says, over all these virtues, put on your coat, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Again, the gospel could be translated the word of Christ or the gospel of Christ. Let it dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Listen, I hope you're blessed sometimes by going online and listening to podcasts and watching a service, but it's not the church. But like you need 
to be with other image bearers that have been rescued and redeemed by God. You need to hear their voices praise God. There's something that happens in your soul when you are together as a church. He goes on, he says, and whatever you do, just kind of closing this up, whatever you, that's, a, that's already in all play, but just to be clarified, whatever you do, whether in word, what you say, or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the plan for your perseverance. This is, the, this is what will keep you rooted in the faith, established and built up five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. So the word of God was given not just for our information, but for our transformation. So, so how do we now respond to the word of God by the spirit of God this morning? Let me ask a few questions to that end. And you can answer those between you and God right where you sit. But how will you set your heart and your mind on things above this week? And again, it, it can be different for different people. What, what will stir your affections for the truth of God, for Jesus, this week? What, what practices would be helpful to those ends? Uh, next question. In what areas are you still living out your old life? What, what things do you need to take off? What, what sin needs to be murdered in your life? We're all in process. So you should have an answer for that. What's your plan for that? Who can you tell? Who would, you, who would be willing to help join you in that fight? And then finally, how will you intentionally clothe yourself with Christ's likeness? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. How will you bear with one another, forgive one another? How will you put on love this week? The, the answer to these questions are eternally important. A hundred years from now, all of us will be in glory. Two things will matter in that moment. First and foremost, that Jesus is king and he's on his throne, ruling and reigning over all. Praise God for that. But what will matter a hundred years from now is how you answer these questions. Was it a priority in your life to put to death the old nature, to put on Christ? Did we kill sin? Did we put on Christ? Did we love one another well? Did we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus? And Calvary Chapel, this is my hope and this is my prayer for you. To that end, let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, thank you that you not only delight to welcome us into the family of God, you delight to grow us in the family of God. I pray that you would continue to do that for every image bearer here. Lord, if there's anyone in this room now that has not yet bowed the knee and confessed with the tongue that Jesus is Lord, I pray that even now they would respond to your voice by grace alone through faith alone. For the rest of us, Lord, show us this week real tangible ways that we can kill sin in our lives to put on Christ and his likeness in our lives. To the end that Christ is seen, savored, and glorified, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.